Yeah, hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Pacific Talks Season 2. I'm your host Philippe and in this podcast I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about global challenges throughout a Pacific perspective. Today I'm sharing with you a fascinating conversation I had with Lord Fusitua, a Tongan politician and noble of the Kingdom of Tonga who serves in multiple organizations and who is also a notorious Bitcoin advocate in the Pacific. Lord Fusitua is very active in several key areas of anti-corruption and global transnational security in Oceania, as well as in the financial technology arena. He is a grassroots and social media educator and advocate for Bitcoin to empower the underbanked agrarian farmers, particularly in the area of remittances. He advocates for legislation to allow Tonga to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency. Our conversation has been fascinating and extensive as we delve deep into the challenges and benefits of cryptocurrencies and blockchain in the Pacific. As I wanted to share with you the whole extent of our chat, this episode will be presented in three parts. So stay tuned for the coming parts in the weeks to come. On this first part of our conversation, Lord Fusitua tells us about his career and how he came to realize the importance of Bitcoin for Tonga and the Pacific. He's also sharing with us some news about the situation of Tonga following the major volcanic eruption in January and how the economy as well as the community have been since then. So now, on to the first part of my conversation with Lord Fusitua. Lord Fusitua, Yorana, Maloelele. Maloelele, good to be here. Uh, so my first question, just to uh, know a little bit uh, more about you for those uh, of us who are listening and don't know about you. So can you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your life path? Yes, um, my pleasure. Firstly, it's an absolute privilege uh, to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So thank you very much, uh, Philippe. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, so myself, uh, my name's Lord Fustua. Um, I'm from a country called the Kingdom of Tonga, which is a small island kingdom in the South Pacific. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, it's the last kingdom in Polynesia. Uh, in fact, it's along with Ethiopia. Uh, it's one of the only two BIPOC uh, black indigenous or people of colour uh, nations on the planet that were never colonised, so mm. only ourselves and, and Ethiopia. So the royal family that uh, presides over us now um, is the same family that has done so for the past 1,400 years, uh, in direct descent, uh, unbroken. So uh, that's an integral part of our culture. Um, me personally, I'm uh, a barrister and solicitor by trade. Um, I have been so for uh, a couple of decades now. Um, I specialise in intellectual property, uh, uh, banking and finance also, uh, but began um, my career uh, as a Crown Prosecutor. Uh, so I uh, was qualified and admitted to the Bar uh, of the High Court of Australia 
and began working in Australia until my father um, called me home to Tonga uh, to uh, take up uh, my duties insofar as uh, making my contribution uh, to help building Tonga. So uh, I, uh, yeah, I had to forego a very comfortable six-figure salary mm. in Australia and come back uh, to be paid $7,000 a year in Tonga to work in government as a Crown Prosecutor. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's uh, being... Um, in the midst of Polynesian culture, you will understand that uh, these responsibilities, uh, family, uh, God, king and country are, are a big deal to us. Mm. So, yeah, it, I, that seemed completely natural to me. There was nothing abnormal about giving up a six-figure salary to come home and work uh, in Tonga for not too much. So, yeah, I began as a Crown Prosecutor uh, for a number of years, I moved into administration. I became the deputy secretary of uh, the Ministry of Justice, uh, where I administered the courts and the Ministry of Justice, uh, and uh, ran our uh, law reform committee, which is Tonga's version of the Law Reform Commission, which vets all legislation before it becomes law. Uh, then. Uh, I went from there um, into private practice. Um, I became general counsel for a satellite company. Uh, I'm not sure how long you've been in Polynesia. You may have heard of a company called uh, TongaSat. Uh, Tonga mm -hmm. went through a period in the 80s and 90s where I came up with the novel idea of uh, registering satellite slots in space uh, because companies cannot do that, only uh, sovereign nations can. Uh, Tonga, upon the advice of uh, some colleagues of uh, His Late Majesty, the uh, Fourth, who was king then, um, discovered that some of the prime slots that covered the footprint from India, Pakistan, China, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, uh, all the way to the American West Coast had neglected to be registered by uh, the superpowers in the 80s. Mm. So Tonga registered those slots and made uh, some decent revenue for the country uh, by leasing them out uh, to companies, to other countries. Uh, so I was general counsel, uh, legal counsel for that company, uh, as well as uh, the, the the group of companies that were owned by um, our proprietor, Princess Pillar Level, um, for nearly a decade. Uh, from there, I moved back into uh, my initial training, which is into corporate law, and I went into private practice as a corporate lawyer, clients that ranged from uh, insurance to shipping, uh, and ironically, uh, since I became a Bitcoin advocate, I went into, and am still, uh, the legal counsel uh, on retainer for Federal Pacific Finance and Fexco Pacific, who own Western Union uh, in three quarters of the, of the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was 
working in corporate law until about a decade ago when my father passed away. Uh, so under our constitution, uh, there are 33 houses of the nobility who are uh, codified into our constitution and our land law. So uh, one of those titles uh, is uh, I'm, I was the heir to, uh, and I inherited the title from my father. So I became the 23rd Lord Fusitua, uh, which the 22 gentlemen before me stretched back about 1,200 years. So, uh, yeah, it's a long tradition to be uh, part of, and it's a big responsibility to take on um, the legacy that some uh, uh, great men have left. Um, uh, mm. Expression standing on the shoulders of giants is very uh, happy in the situation. Uh, my father being the most recent, uh, he was the longest serving uh, Lord Speaker of Parliament in Tonga. Uh, he was the first uh, Tongan uh, or Pacific person to uh, become the chairman of the entire Commonwealth Parliamentary Association. Uh, and for the Commonwealth Pacific Parliamentary Group, uh, ironically, which I'm now chairman of, um, a generation later, uh, and through uh, work in Parliament, um, I was recruited by an uh, international body called GOPAC, which is a legislative body. It's the legislative arm of uh, global anti-corruption. So GOPAC, or the Global Organisation of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, the legislative arm, uh, the UNODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, is the executive or law enforcement body, and Transparency International is the civil society uh, body. So it's a three-pronged um, structure of anti-corruption globally. So we, uh, from the legislative side, we set up anti-corruption institutions in countries. So uh, the UNODC fly me to a country like Kiribati. I go in, uh, set up the anti-corruption commission front for them, show them how it works, go into their parliament, set up their anti-corruption committee, which provides legislative oversight for uh, the commission uh, and get everything running and workshop them through it uh, in regular intervals and how to pursue best practices that fall in line with UNCAC, uh, the UN Convention Against Corruption. Uh, then on the other side, we help uh, advise and work with bodies like NATO, uh, which is the, the side that is of relevance to uh, my Bitcoin advocacy in that we trace illicit financial flows. Mm. So we trace the, the fiat financial flows that go through the fiat banks to the Middle East and particularly to ISIS. Uh, the flows that come out of uh, China uh, with the triads, uh, all the China white heroin uh, and human trafficking money that comes out of there through Southeast Asia. Uh, to Australia, New Zealand, and then to the west coast of the US, and then all the Sinaloa, Cali, and Juarez cartel uh, cocaine money that comes back the other way. 
uh, and we seized those uh, uh, illegally gotten gains, uh, is what they're called, and we repatriate them to the countries where they're from mm. and distribute them to, uh, to uh, lesser privileged uh, people in that society. So we give them out to the poor in Colombia or to uh, places in Southeast Asia, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, where there are a lot of poor and we work with civil society, Transparency International on the ground to repatriate those, those finances. Uh, I then was also um, recruited by the Commonwealth, uh, the actual Commonwealth Secretariat, out of Marlborough House in London, which is presided over uh, by Baroness Scotland, Patricia Scotland, uh, Tony Blair's former Attorney General, who's now the Director General of the Commonwealth. Uh, and I became the Chairman of the Commonwealth uh, Pacific Parliamentary Group uh, on Human Rights. So we do uh, climate change work. Uh, we visit nations, um, assess their compliance with the Paris Agreement uh, and uh, at a jurisprudence level internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, the UN Refugees Convention, uh, which was uh, handed down in 1951 uh, as a Global North uh, Convention, which is primarily uh, written to help uh, Jews flee Nazi Germany and mm -hmm. to find uh, repatriation elsewhere. So it focuses on, uh, on conflict refugees, uh, religious or political persecution refugees. But if you're a climate refugee from Kiribati and your country disappears underwater tomorrow, uh, the convention doesn't recognize you as a refugee. So you can't get asylum anywhere. And that's something that we're working to amend the convention uh, to deal with climate refugees, because as you all know, being from Polynesia, this is the premier existential threat um, to the planet. And we're feeling it most of all, mm, uh, despite the fact that we made zero contribution to uh, its inception and its growth. Uh, we're feeling uh, the majority of the of the blowback. So we do climate change, and then we also do gender uh, equality, women's empowerment, uh, anti-violence against women, especially violence against women and girls and young girls across the region, uh, as well as globally. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you would be with uh, the fact that in Polynesian culture, um, uh, statistically, violence against women uh, two, between two thirds and three quarters of the time is by somebody that they know mm. and by someone who's actually in a position of protector, who's supposed to be protecting them. So in Polynesia, we don't discuss those things, especially okay. if they're in the family. So we're working at a cultural mindset change to be able to have these things reported and to change legislation to protect women and girls. And then the other side of that coin is the human trafficking out of Southeast Asia, 
which will work with other nations uh, to change cultures in Southeast Asia. Uh, they don't encourage it, but it's okay in their societies where families sell daughters off uh, because that's the only way for the rest of the family to eat. And that's quite a regular occurrence. So dealing with that comes down to workshopping out in the villages, uh, helping to change their minds about the, um, the gender assignation of roles in their society that maybe uh, young girls aren't really a commodity but uh, uh, human beings. Finally, one which is usually completely uh, taboo in Polynesia is uh, LGBTQIA plus rights. So we are the, uh, the main LGBTQIA plus advocates um, in our region at an international level. So we make efforts to change legislation where it's still required. In Tonga, for instance, homosexuality is still illegal, uh, not because there are policemen running around checking people's bedrooms, uh, just because there's a over a hundred year old law against sodomy. Uh, so sodomy is a very particular provision which was written to protect younger males from older predatory males. But it has the effect in real terms of uh, criminalising consensual relations between two adults. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that, and particularly violence uh, against um, uh, gay gay men, particularly young gay boys mm. who get uh, beaten and often killed in Polynesia because, as you know, there are very definitive uh, male gender assignations yeah. of roles in our culture mm. uh, that are anathema to that. Uh, but at the same time, paradoxically, as with all things in human culture, uh, places like Tonga and Samoa um, treat uh, homosexual men uh, as if they were women. So they are treated, uh, they're accepted by families. Parents always want at least one gay son because that means he's the one that's going to stay and look after them. The rest mm -hmm. are all going to go and get married. And so are the girls. And in their old age, having what someone's called a whafafinge, or what Tongans call for AD means you've no, got it ain't uh, also. exactly you've got an able-bodied uh, mm -hmm. son who's going to look after you into your your twilight years. So yeah, so that's kind of uh, what I do, and from that. Um, I may as well get into my my Bitcoin journey very briefly <laughs> to give all this some relevance. Uh, a few years ago, I was doing a constitutional um, amendment tour in Tonga. We don't have 
referendum legislation. So mm -hmm. the government of the day was trying to amend our constitution to entrench uh, the powers of the legislature and the judiciary into the executive. The, the, the prime minister of the day wanted it all for himself. So we are, we are our Western legal uh, codified legislative history is a Westminster democracy, uh, Westminster constitutional uh, monarchy one. That's what we took up when we changed from our traditional uh, Polynesian Tongan codes of conduct and laws into a Western system. We constructed a hybrid of uh, ancient Tongan traditions, uh, Westminster uh, constitutional monarchy and Victorian era lower middle class English Methodist social values. Mm. They were all tied in because they, they, that's who Christianised us and that's who taught our king at the time to read and write in English and they were a heavy influence on his politics uh, and on his view of Christianity. So our, our laws uh, became that. Um, yeah, so we became a constitutional monarchy and uh, the government of this time was trying to basically turn us into a banana republic. Um, and a number of us, myself most vociferously, objected to it. Uh, and I invoked uh, a section in our parliamentary uh, standing orders that require all bills to be taken to public consultation before passing. It's not usually observed because it's mechanically, if you've got uh, laws that just increase uh, the tax on cigarettes, it's impractical to take everything like that to the public for two weeks. Mm. So as a matter of convention, it's not observed. But when there's something that will fundamentally change people's uh, rights and liabilities under the Constitution and the structure of power, then I argued that has to go to public consultation particularly because we don't have referendum legislation. Mm. So I toured the nation village by village, eight hours a day, four hours in the morning, four hours at night, and talked through every, nearly every person in the country through the legislation, how it would change the laws. So I can't um, argue for one side or the other. I merely present the old law the new law and explain to them what the effect of the new law will be. And you can choose whether you think this government should have autocratic power or not. That's up to you. But I'll explain to you what the law does. And the government of the day made a big publicity campaign to deny the fact that they were, in fact, amending the Constitution in the way that they were. Uh, so when people finally had the law explained to them, they were like, uh, hang on, it, but it does change everything and give them the power. And I went, uh, yeah, kind of, that's kind of what I'm telling you. So the country voted 
uh, on an 85, just under 90% level to throw these bills out. Uh, they didn't want them and they didn't go ahead. So Tonga was saved from becoming uh, a banana republic. It was a pretty hectic tour, um, two months long, uh, about 16 to 18 hour days. And I collapsed when I got back from it. Uh, mm. I had not known that I'd been ill prior and during it. So I collapsed uh, and eventually died clinically. So I was rushed to hospital and they found that all my intestines had become perforated and I was oh. leaking fecal matter through my bloodstream. My whole body became septic and shut down. Uh, so I clinically died. They revived me and they kept me alive for 36 hours while they scoured uh, the Pacific for an air ambulance. Uh, they couldn't find one in Auckland, couldn't find one in Sydney, found one in Brisbane, and they got me to Auckland where I'm told the OR staff were literally on the tarmac uh, because uh, it was that touch and go. Mm. Three uh, surgeries over two days, where I clinically died uh, one more time, just for good measure, and they revived me again. And finally, they saved my life. Uh, so, yeah, very fortunate. Uh, dying clinically twice and having uh, the not near death, but after death experiences. Uh, that I had, uh, I can confirm that there are a number of the cliches about that experience, seeing the light, etc. Uh, that in in fact do occur. Um, I can tell you much more about it uh, at a later date, but uh, for the time being, uh, yeah. So that occurred, and from that, they had to slit my throat open in order to get piping down into my lungs to breathe. Uh, they couldn't get it through my throat. Uh, so they had to put a tube through my nose into my stomach to feed me. And I had to learn to breathe. It took me about two months to learn to breathe again by myself. Then I had to learn to swallow again because the throat had collapsed. So they taught, they teach you first with a sip of water. So I wasn't allowed a sip of water for five months. Nothing was allowed to go through my throat because it would go straight into the lungs. So having a dry mouth for five months, I can tell you, not fun at all. So, yeah, literally no water passed my lips. I'd get ice cubes, which I could suck on and then spit out to keep my mouth moist. Uh, and then obviously with the throat gone, so was any speech. So my nurses didn't hear me speak until for five months in. Um, and then quite a few months of that on my back, uh, coming back to full strength. So during that period when I couldn't move, couldn't speak, couldn't swallow, couldn't breathe on my own, um, there's not too much to do. My arms uh, weren't strong enough. So maybe hold a, a cell phone up and play a game of Angry Birds or something. I could only hold a screen up with one hand. 
So I, after having been exposed to Bitcoin in 2013 and gone through losing it in 2013 and in 2016 again, uh, I fell back down the rabbit hole. Um, so for that nearly a year of being on my bed, on my back, not being able to move, I effectively read every word that had ever been printed about Bitcoin, every word that had ever been spoken about it, every word that had ever been recorded, moving image that had been recorded or broadcast. Uh, yeah, 24 hours a day for that nearly a year in hospital. It was just Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So... What I rediscovered, as we all know, is it's the most pristine asset known to man. It has digital scarcity, which you can only discover once. It provides a decentralized system, which does away with a trusted third-party custodian and makes transactions peer-to-peer. It satisfies the seven... uh, characteristics of money better than fiat, the traditional medium of exchange or gold, 5,000-year-old store of value do. Therefore, it's a hedge against inflation and it's the best performing asset of the past decade because it is the most superior store of value. Um, 200-plus percent CAGR, cumulative annual growth rates, on average growth since its inception year on year. Uh, it's given it uh, over a 6 million percent um, uh, increase since its inception, 6 million X. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I discovered for someone in an OECD country, it could easily form the foundation of generational wealth by investing and holding it, Uh, Bitcoin the asset. But what struck me and um, what propelled my much more intense interest in it and therefore drove my advocacy was the fact that the Bitcoin network uh, could be game-changing for Polynesia right now. It's not a low time preference where you hold it and it goes up in value. It can reclaim GDPs in Polynesia now because of its superior uh, payments network. Um, the 70 million that Tonga lost just in fees alone to Western Union last year, Bitcoin on Lightning can reclaim it in a second. Uh, Tonga's GDP is 510 million USD last year because Tonga is the most GDP remittance-dependent country on the planet, Uh, 40.1% of our GDP, or nearly half of our economy. Uh, Last year, that equaled 200 million. was made up of remittances. Mm. Now, the problem with that is because they're fiat remittances and it goes through the remittance industry, namely Western Union, and to a small extent, the banks. The 200 million doesn't get to Tonga, only 130 million gets here because 70%, I mean, 70 million or 30% uh, gets a bite 
$70 million byte gets taken out by remittances. So if you change that to Bitcoin on Lightning, overnight you do what Jack Mallers did in El Salvador with Naib Bukele, and you get uh, cross-borders, international, uh, peer-to-peer, no intermediaries, payment network that's natively global, the first natively global monetary system. Uh, You don't have to change it into yen. Um, Send it uh, in a particular way to Japan or to London or New York. Bitcoin's Bitcoin wherever you go. Uh, So, yeah, cross-borders internationally, peer-to-peer, with no intermediaries. Because that's why Western Union does what it does. If Western Union could afford to send money for free, it would, because the, the business model would make give it much more profit. Mm-hmm. It can't because it has about twelve intermediaries. It's got to pay between you and where the money gets. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bitcoin on Lightning, zero intermediaries, peer to peer, instantly, and effectively for free. Uh, because it costs about 0.00001 sats, not even cents, sats, which is less than a cent. Mm. So a thousandth of a sat is about a millionth of a cent, uh, and that's how much it will cost you to spend. Mm. So doing that, that can change the whole, not just the economic future, that can change the destiny of a, of a nation. Uh, so... Yeah, that's kind of got me to where we are now. So, thirty-one minutes. Um, as I've told many podcasts, I'm a politician and a barrister by profession. So all we do is talk. So you're gonna have to tell me when to shut up. <laughs> yeah, no, that uh, I was the, I was just uh, inspired by your your life and what you've achieved and all that you're doing uh, on a daily basis, which definitely makes a, a very busy uh, busy schedule, I'm sure. And and thanks also for for putting all that into no, more of a historical historical context. Uh, be- yeah. Before we get back to to the core of our conversation uh, mm-hmm. and. And again, your this introduction was really inspiring and interesting. But uh, another point I would like to to address before we get on is is obviously Tonga has been through a lot uh, in the past few months. You had That's this right. gigantic uh, volcanic eruption. You had the first wave of COVID right after. Uh, so just tell us how's the country doing? How's your people and how's the recovery going uh, in in the current situation? Yeah, I won't lie, it's pretty tough. Mm. Um, our crop harvest was wiped out completely, no crops Mm. at all. That means in January the crops were wiped out, the sixth-month window to June. That means in June there's going to be a famine because there Mm. there are no crops. So an already import-dependent country Mm. is going to become 100% import-dependent for food. So we're going to have to import food more, which completely throws our trade balance out of whack. Uh, we don't have the foreign reserves to afford that. So it's it's pretty tough. Mm. Um, the it, it got hit. So our economy 
was brought to its knees. Um, and unfortunately, in order to let the first responders in with aid, uh, what Tonga had been uh, afraid of and what's kept its borders closed for nearly three years, uh, Tonga was zero COVID mm. up until January the 15th. Um, as soon as they opened the borders. So Tonga is zero COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. There's been no COVID in Tonga ever. Uh, and then when they had to open the borders to let the aid workers in, uh, Omicron shot into the thousands within a week or two. Uh, and then we've had our first COVID deaths. So they're trying to recover um, our groundwater has been completely contaminated by volcanic ash. Uh, the air uh, and rainwater is contaminated because there are still remnants of, I don't know how it works geologically, but there are still puffs of smoke or whatever that bring volcanic ash in and out of our, of our airspace. So rainwater is also, that's acid rain. So then we become dependent on bottled water, imported bottled water. Um, and finally, all this we're trying to recover while in a newly imposed lockdown because of the COVID. So Tonga does, has never had lockdown. They don't know how lockdown looks, what lockdown looks mm. like, everything that everyone else has already been through. Uh, so think of yourself in February 2020 and your conception and your perception of what it's like to walk free on the streets. That's how Tongans still are in their mind. But they're suddenly hit with Omicron and uh, all the precautions that are now necessary. Uh, so they're trying to recover whilst in lockdown and, uh, for instance, um, all businesses are trying to recover, but they're closed. They're not allowed to be open. So it's impossible for them to recover. So it's impossible for them to pay wages. So it's impossible for the people that work at the restaurants uh, to get any salary. So they can't go buy any food. And if they wanted to buy food, there's none at the market anyway because there's no, mm. no crop to harvest. So... It's pretty, it's pretty uh, hard going. Um, so a few relevant points of interest are when communications broke down, our internet is um, serviced by an undersea fibre optic cable mm -hmm. uh, that runs from Telstra through Fiji to us. Uh, that was severed in two places. The satellite backup collapsed. So there were no international voice or data comms for the first fortnight. Mm. Ironically, um, Samson Moe, who runs Blockstream, uh, had given me a couple of base units, Bitcoin satellite kits, as a get well gift. He actually sent them by... FedEx, the hospital mm. where I am now, um, as get well gifts. So I sent them to Tonga. So 
when there were no data or voice legacy data or voice comms, the only thing, ironically, that was getting into Tonga were those Bitcoin donations that people sent me because I airdropped them from the Blockstream satellite direct to the base unit, which, as you know, doesn't require internet access. It goes direct from the Blockstream satellite to a base unit on the ground. So we were airdropping Bitcoin into Tonga when nothing else was getting in or out. So I had no voice, so I couldn't tell whether it was getting there. I found out much later that the it didn't get there until probably two or three days after it occurred to my guys on the ground who I'd given the kit to, to well, just let's give it a shot. Let's just point the thing at the air. Someone might be trying to get in. So we airdrop free Bitcoin in. So if you went to anywhere where the base units were and logged onto that Wi-Fi network, you could get free Bitcoin, uh, which you could go uh, both on-chain or Lightning if you wanted. Mm. So you could go and purchase things on Lightning uh, at any store who would accept it, and then it could get settled up uh, to on-chain when internet access was re-established and it would, those transactions would get written uh, to the blockchain. Um, so, yeah, that was ironic that uh, we were able to get some sats in. Uh, then uh, because there was um, a lot of quarantine on the ground and they wouldn't let uh, planes in, um, my island, my actual estate, my personal estate that uh, I inherited under the Constitution and the Land Act, uh, the country's divided amongst us, the king and the 33 nobles. Mine is the furthest north, so it's actually closer to Samoa and Fiji than it is to Tonga. It's the most remote. It's mm. the poorest. So the chances of any aid getting from the main island to there within the next year is slim. So I chartered a plane out of Brisbane, um, got the supplies onto it, um, ham radios, because comms had been taken down throughout the country. Uh, the radio wave uh, inter-island links had been wiped out as well. So um, I sent everything that you'd need if this was to happen again. So uh, all the supplies that, wouldn't, that would survive another volcanic uh, eruption mm. or tsunami. So ham radio uh, units mm. with 60-foot uh, antenna mm. that could uh, be used for inter-island comms that wouldn't be affected by a volcano uh, or the tsunami, uh, solar panels and solar battery kits because that's what they don't have is there are places that run off solar, but they don't have the battery kits that can store mm. the energy when the sun's not out. So solar's useless to you without those battery kits. Yeah. 
As a reminder, this episode is shared with you in three parts. So stay tuned for the coming following parts in the weeks to come to continue to explore with us the challenges and benefits of Bitcoin and blockchain in the Pacific. Pacific Talks is a podcast hosted by me, Philippe, and produced by Pacific Venture Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to subscribe to any podcast platform of your choice. You can also share it on your social medias or with your friends, family or colleagues. And if you listen to it on a podcast platform, feel free to leave us a review. This is very important to us as it helps us to reach out to more people. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas following this conversation, you can reach out to us directly by email, contact at pacificventry.com or on all our social platforms. Until next time, with another guest, another discussion on the challenges of the Pacific. Take care and see you soon.